All right, hey, let's do what we always do. I'm glad to be here, how about you? Give me some love. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Hey, my name is Tony, and I'm gonna make you keep the clappers going a little bit more. I wanna welcome everybody who's watching in online right now. Way to go for being there. I know Ronette and Dave and a handful of others watch every single week. They can't make it here, and so way to go. Um, way for dialing in. Hey, Ben mentioned we are kicking off today a really fun series. It's called Fixer Upper. It's a four-week series that we'll work our way through through this month, and I am just excited for it. I've been excited for it for a long time now. But before we dive into the series, I want to just kind of let you know that part of the reason why I'm so jacked up, we might be here for two hours this morning, I'm just kidding about that, but is, is because of baptisms. And uh, after the service, we have eight people. Maybe you're here right now, and you're going to go, hey, I think this is something I need to do. And you're going to blitz home. You're going to grab some swim trunks and be right back. And because baptism is really the reason why we started this church, is to see people find their hope and faith and love in Jesus Christ. And so eight people are getting baptized today. I am thrilled about that. And I think it's going to be just a great morning. So way to go for being here. Um, but like Ben said, we are starting a brand new series called Fixer Upper, and I'm not sure um, if, uh, if you know the show that we're going to be talking about or not. It's called Fixer Upper, and uh, so quick show of hands, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever seen the show Fixer Upper? Let's just see them in the air. Yeah, raise them up, men. All right, come on. Yeah, and how many of you, now just make some noise for me, how many of you actually like the show Fixer Upper? <laughs> All right, hey, not bad, not bad. I actually like the show maybe a little bit more than I should. I mean, I am like totally into this bad boy. Uh, we watch it on Netflix. I mean, we watch the show all the time. Anytime we can, fix her up. Or, um, Carrie and I, well, not I, uh, Carrie actually reads the journal. So the Magnolia Journal. I mean, we are into this thing. I mean, there's the book. Uh, thank goodness I haven't read the book or you might take away my man card for that. But I mean, we, we love the show. And part of the reason why we love the show is because of Chip and Joanna, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to watch the cool home repairs, but the way that they do life together is just awesome. And if you are, by chance, one of the few who've never seen the show, let me just give you a quick synopsis of what goes on. You got Chip and Joanne, who grab a couple, they have a couple who is looking for a home, and it's near Waco, Texas, and instead of going the conventional route of finding the, the home of your dreams that's already fixed up and lovely and all this right stuff, they take them around and show them three bad, you know, fixer-uppers that need a lot of attention, a lot of work. And as they show them these homes, you can kind of see the faces of, the, of their clients kind of like, are you serious, this home? You know, no, no way I'm going to like this place. But they show them, and at the, you know, kind of the middle point of the show, they pick one of their homes that they want Joanna and Chip to fix up. And what she does, which is amazing, I, I would love to have this, like, software on my computer. She, like, throws it up on her computer. She dials it in and makes it look incredible. The, the couple gets all jacked up, and then they let them go. I mean, they don't, they don't talk to the people barely unless there's major projects that go wrong. And, and after, you know, 45 minutes of... Joanna designing and Chip demoing, you have this like, voila, this beautiful home happen. And it's incredible. It's incredible. Here's actually some before and after pictures of their homes. This is, uh, this is a kitchen that they remodeled. And check this out. I mean, doesn't that happen to your home repair all the time? I mean, this is like, this is totally you, isn't it? Here's another one right here. I think this is actually some of your kitchens. Like this, isn't that like, you're like, that's my kitchen. Well, let me just tell you what could happen. If you just kind of spend 45 minutes of a TV show, your kitchen could look like that. I'm like, give me a break. One last one. This one literally looks like the home that I grew up uh, in my childhood. You know, it had the same cabinet here. 
and uh, check out what they did to this. I mean, this is just not even fair, not even fair. It takes me like two weeks to hang a rod above, you know, like a curtain rod in my bedroom. It's ridiculous. These guys knocked that out in 45 minutes. And so, but I love these guys. I love these guys. Obviously, I know it's longer than that. It's like two hours. So, and so, but I love the show, and it's an absolute hit. And the reason why it's a hit is not because of their ridiculous talent. I mean, they are so good at what they do, but there's more to it. I think it's an enormous hit, quite honestly, because of Chip and Joanna. Them together, they kind of balance each other out, don't they? You got Joanna, who is this driven go-getter. You got Chip, who's this hilarious dad who just has a lot of fun and like just does dumb things all the time and and they together make this you know this this fixer upper show just magnet over three million views per show it's just enormously rated uh we actually got a a blooper reel of their chemistry that they have together so take a peek on the side screens of what chip and joanna are like Now, I love it. I love it. If, you, if you've seen the show, you know, you're like, oh, man, this is what she does. She shiplaps everything. But I love it. I mean, I'm not sure if you're a guy in there and you're like, I can relate to that guy. You know, I just do whatever I can to annoy my wife half the time. But they, they love it. And it's just so fun. And maybe you're here and you're going, okay, why are we talking about this in church? I mean, we're going to spend four weeks talking about this couple? No. The real reason that we're going to talk about this for the next four weeks is because we all have some fixer-uppers in our life, don't we? I mean, each and every one of us, we, we have this stuff that we have to do. The truth is, um, we're doing fixer-upper, quite honestly, number one, because you are a fixer-upper. I mean, it's just, every time you look in the mirror, you might look at yourself and go, oh, shoot, I got a lot to do. You know, like, you can see yourself, and you can see the stuff in your life that you go, it shouldn't be like this. Uh, I should have been past this already in my life. We are a fixer-upper, and so we're going to spend these four weeks kind of looking at ourselves, because every once in a while, it's a real healthy thing to take a look in the mirror and go, hey God, is there anything in me that needs to change? Is there anything in me that needs to take a step forward? That's one of the reasons why. The second reason that we're going to do this is because you have one. I mean, each and every one of us have a fixer-upper. And what I mean by this is a fixer-upper happens when your heart is captivated by something. Maybe it's an injustice in this world. Maybe it's something that you see on TV and you go, I can't stand sitting on the sidelines. I have to do some fixing upping around this topic, around this thing in my life. You have one and I have one. It's what makes your heart beat, your blood boil. We have something. We are one. And the third one is we are one. Us together. We're a fixer-upper. Quite honestly, it's why we exist as a church is to help people find Jesus. It's why we 
moved to Washington, Iowa to start this place is because we believe to our core that everybody's life would be better if Jesus was at the center, that people would make better decisions, that marriages would be stronger. We are on this fixer-upper mission to help people find Jesus. And so I'm thrilled about it. Now, to help us guide the conversation, we're actually going to be diving into a book of the Bible, great book of the Bible. It's called Nehemiah, and ironically, it's about a guy named Nehemiah. It wasn't very original, but so Nehemiah, it's about a guy named Nehemiah, and it's about this ordinary guy who does something extraordinary. He starts one of the biggest fixer-upper projects in all of the scripture, and I love it. Because what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to see this guy journey from his heart being compelled to start something to seeing it completed. And it's my hope that over the next four Sundays that maybe you would feel stirred within yourself, that God would maybe speak to you and you'd say, I think I'm called to do something, to step into an area of my life that needs to be fixed up. Now, Nehemiah starts out a little bit confusing, but to give you the context and what's going on in the book of the Bible, I just thought it'd be best if we dived in together right in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1. It says this, the words of Nehemiah, this is the beginning of the book, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, I just got to be honest, the, the dad of Nehemiah's brother, Hakaliah's brother is Hakalugi. I'm pretty sure that's like... <laughs> Who names your kid Hakaliah? And I only just make kid fun of this a little bit to let you know there's going to be some weird names in this book. I mean, there just are. There's weird names all throughout the Bible. But you got Nehemiah, you got his dad Hakalugi, you know, Uncle Frank and whatever. But it says, in the month of Kislev, in the 12th year, while I was in the fortress of Susa, he's telling you where he's at, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, why in the world is he questioning these people? And maybe you're going, time out, you, can you get that out of there? I can't even, what did they just talk about right there? And, and I shouldn't just race on because the truth is maybe you're here and you're going, what is that? I can't understand what you just read. And it took me, I shouldn't race on because it took me like all week to figure out what the first two verses meant, to be honest. And here's, here's what happens when we read scripture, just so you know, especially stuff like this, that there almost takes a, a Bible guide or a commentary or something that you dig deeper to find out the meaning. And so if I can, just for a brief second, I want to just give you a meaning of what's happening, the context of what we're reading and where we're at in history right now as he's writing this. If you want to take notes, this is extra credit, two words that you can jot down is ruin and return. I'll put it up on the screen here. Ruin and return. Ruin and return. It's going to help you understand where we're at right now when Nehemiah is writing this down. Um, give me some grace on this. I'm not the best at this type of stuff. I've given like all this type of detail, but I'm going to do my best. According to history, this book was written in 445 BC. When Nehemiah was actually penning this book, the state of Jerusalem was in ruin. Absolute ruin. The walls had been broken down, and you might go, why were they broken down? Well, because in 587 BC, even further before it, there was a king named King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon who came to Jerusalem and fought against it, fought against it and destroyed the city. 
And so Nehemiah, you know, years after, is writing this letter, telling the story of what's been going on, but it all traces back to King Nebuchadnezzar going and destroying Jerusalem. He actually burns down the walls, breaks down the walls and the gates. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar actually had a policy of deporting the people of that city back to his hometown, back to Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, destroys the place, enslaves everybody, takes them back to Babylon, and it's actually where we find where Nehemiah is writing his story right now. So he's kind of a part of this group that has been in exile, taken away from Jerusalem, now where he's at right now. Now fast forward 50 years, there's another king that comes to power. His name is Cyrus the Great. I'll put him up here. Cyrus the Great fights against King Nebuchadnezzar. He sees where King Nebuchadnezzar is, and he wants it. And he fights, and he's kind of from this, he's the king of Persia at the time, which just so you know is modern day Iran. Some of you care, some of you don't care. Anyways, you got Cyrus the Great who goes and fights Nebuchadnezzar and wins. And his policy is different than Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar, like I said, deports the people and takes them back to Babylon. Cyrus says, I don't really need you around. You can go back home if you choose. And so right now, in the setting where this book was written, we have some Jewish people of Jerusalem who decide, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go back home, but it's less than they expected. They called themselves the remnant, kind of like a piece of carpet that you kind of throw away. A remnant piece decides to go back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah and his family decided to stay, the majority of his family. And so when he's writing these first two verses, he's writing them, and Hananiah, one of his brothers, is actually part of the remnant that went back they're coming to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah wants to question them about what's been going on in Jerusalem since they've returned back there. Jerusalem was in ruins, some returned, and now they're called the remnant who Nehemiah is now asking about Jerusalem. I know it's a lot, but again, this is why Nehemiah writes this in verse 2. I'll put it back on the screen. He says, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, all right, they said this back to him, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Translation for us today, Jerusalem is a train wreck. It's disaster. It's in shambles. Jerusalem and the walls, this is why Nehemiah gets compelled to do something, is a complete fixer-upper. You got his family who comes back who have been there and said, hey, Nehemiah, we need some help. I mean, everything about home is destroyed. It is in shambles. Nehemiah, would you do something about it? And he does. Because his world has now been rocked. And friends, I had a question for you this morning. And the question is this. What's broken in your life that needs fixing. In Nehemiah's life, it was his home city. It was broken down. And it needed fixing. And Nehemiah felt compelled by it. Question for you is, what's broken in your life that needs fixing? For some of you, instantly, you don't think about a wall or a fence, you think about your marriage. And you go, oh, that, that was a no-brainer. Where we are at in our marriage right now is the equivalent of Jerusalem being destroyed. 
I mean, we are barely holding on. Some of you, maybe it's not your marriage. Others of you, it's your finances. And you go, you want to know what's broken in my life, Tony? It's, it's our money. It's how we spend. And I mean, we're, we're shoestringing before we have to file for bankruptcy. We don't know how we're going to make ends meet. Our life is in ruins in terms of our finances. Other of you feel like your spiritual life is just broken. You're not sure what to do with it. Others of you feel like your health. There's maybe an addiction problem that you have, and you feel like your life is broken, and it needs fixing. No matter where you're at, I think the idea behind us is all of us can relate to something in our lives right now that could use some fixing. And that's where Nehemiah is. He's in this pivotal moment where he hears bad news. You know, stuff has kind of hit the fan, and he's got to choose whether he's going to do something about it or shrink back. And that's oftentimes where we find ourselves in life. You hear bad news about your kids. Are you going to step into it, or are you going to shrink back? Your spouse says that you need to talk. Are you going to work on it, or are you just going to let things go to pot? You get that extra bill that comes your way. Are you going to fight to get out of debt and find freedom financially, or are you just going to kind of, you know, just throw your arms up and surrender? Well, Nehemiah finds himself in that spot. He hears about his home city, and he moves into action. And so what I want to do today is if you're with me in this reality that there are some fixer-uppers in our own lives, some fixer-uppers that we experience in life together how do you actually start them? What does it look like to, to move from the sidelines of playing it safe to actually getting in the game and doing something about the hurts that are in our world, in our lives, maybe in your homes or in your community? Well, the truth is we're going to find Nehemiah does this to perfection. And we're going to take a journey on it for the rest of the morning today. So if you're taking notes, you're going to find the first thing that happens in Nehemiah that needs to happen to us is our hearts need to break. Friends, the truth is, if you want to start a fixer-upper project in your own life, if you want to start something, you know, to make a difference in other people's lives, your heart actually needs to be stirred. It needs to break. There needs to be a moment where you just go, oh, I can't, I can't handle what I'm seeing right now around me. Nehemiah's heart broke. He says this in verse 4. He says, puts it this way, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Love that. His heart just was destroyed. He gets this news about his hometown. He may, maybe jogs his memory of, of where he used to play and where he you know, used to go. And, and his heart actually breaks to the spot where he sits down. He can't even stand anymore. And he weeps. In fact, for days, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. His heart's broken. Can I ask you again, what breaks your heart? I mean, what are the things that break your heart? Do you have any? At times, I know for me, there's a handful of things that literally break my heart, burden me. The things that, you, when you see them, you go, I can't. I can't stomach to see that. It's, a, it's wrong. Kind of reminds me of a cartoon that, that, I, that I used to see reruns of. It's the cartoon of Popeye the Sailor Man. You remember Popeye the Sailor Man? Some of you guys remember, others, you know, anybody younger than me are like, who's that? And now you watch Bubble Gumpies and things like that. But like, Popeye the Sailor Man 
was this like four-armed, steroided sailor guy who had the love of his life. The love of his life was olive oil. Look at her. She's a looker. And she just, <laughs> it's just, man, something about olive oil. But, I mean, he loved her so much. But you know what the bad guy's name was? Anybody remember? Brutus. Brutus. Yeah, Brutus. Every episode, Brutus would come in and he would, you know, pick on Popeye. He'd try and steal olive oil. I mean, he just would, I mean, actually almost every episode, Brutus would beat the Brutus out of Popeye. You know, like just smother him to smithereens until Popeye would say some famous words and eat something, you know, that none of us really eat. I mean, he would say, I can't stands it no more. I can't stands it no more. And he'd pop out a can of spinach down it, his forearms would get even bigger, and then he would go and do this to Brutus. I mean, he would just ring his bell. He'd just smoke him. Love it. Like I said, my girls watch Paw Patrol now. Like, what is that? This is the stuff they should be watching, and we'd be in better shape, you know? But what I love about Popeye is his heart broke over injustice towards the love of his life, olive oil. Couldn't stand seeing it happen. Can I ask you again? What breaks your heart? What gets you to the point where your blood boils and you say, I, I, man, if I see it happen like this any longer, I can't stand it no more. Maybe again, it's your marriage. Maybe it's the way that you communicate with each other and you go, that can't be the course of our life. We got to make a different direction. We got to turn. We got we to start doing things God's way. And we got to stay together. We have kids for heaven's sakes. I can't stand it anymore brothers of you, again, it's maybe your finances and the way your parents lived and your parents' parents paycheck to paycheck just fighting to stay afloat. You go, I that just breaks my heart. You see the stress it causes in homes and you go, I gotta do something about this. And it breaks your heart. Friends, for me and for you, it's gonna be different. For me, one of the things that breaks my heart as people who don't know Jesus, it literally breaks my heart to see friends in my life, people in my city, in my community, who don't have the hope of Christ in their lives. I believe everybody's life would be better if they had Jesus in it. That everybody's life would find purpose and freedom and grace and direction if they just trusted Jesus with their life, and I'm telling you, it keeps me up, it breaks my heart to see the decisions people make because they don't know Jesus. Kind of keeps me doing what I do. Another thing kind of similar that breaks my heart, kind of makes my blood boil, is seeing churches that aren't reaching their God-given potential. I mean, it just drives me bonkers that there's 20-some churches in small towns all across Iowa that have about 25 to 30 people gathering, and they're not places where people who are far from God feel welcome to come. It's just, I don't understand it. It breaks my heart. It causes me to say things like, I can't stand it no more. I have to do something about it. Another one that's huge for me is marriages. It breaks my heart to see marriages fall apart and crumble over unnecessary things, over affairs and finances in an unhealthy balance with kids. And I just go, man, we can't have those things 
be the story for all of our lives. There has to be a better way. I have to do something about this. I, my life has to be a part of the solution to those type of things. It's going to be different for you. But I'm just being honest. Those things break my heart. What breaks yours? If you want to start a fixer-upper project, take a lesson from Nehemiah. And let your heart be broken. Side note, I'll just throw this in there. Maybe you're here and you're going, are you kidding me? My heart broken? You have a hard time, you know, saying that you have emotions in your life. And you're like, I don't know, what are you talking about? You know, like, and I just go, hey, it's a great indicator in your life. If your heart never breaks, that there's maybe something off. For those of us just who have stepped over the faith line and do our best to follow after Christ, to put Jesus first in our lives, there's almost this, almost this, this natural heartbreaking over things that break God's heart, over the injustices of this world and in our communities that should happen. It's almost an indicator that there's life in you when your heart breaks. And so again, I'm not going to say, you know, you're all jacked up, but I'm going to say there's a warning light that you should pay attention to if your heart hasn't been stirred lately, I think it's the right thing to have happen in us, to let our hearts break for what break the heart of God. And then we do something about it. Nehemiah's heart broke. And the second thing that happened, that he let happen to him, is he let his tears turn to prayers. Nehemiah moved from his heart breaking to actually going on his knees and praying before his heavenly father. He, he cried, and he mourned, and he fasted, but he also prayed. He said, God, i got to ask you in. i got to be a part of you. I have to be connected to you, God, and I don't want my first response to be, I'll just fix it myself. Because if you're like me, that's what I try and do. I remember almost after every pregnancy that Carrie had, you know, new baby in the house, and she'd be losing her mind over something. I don't really understand why it's so hard to have a baby. But anyways, she'd be going crazy. And I would move to fix-it mode instead of just listen mode. And by the fourth one, I'm still learning, and we're shutting it down there, so I'm out of luck. But I remember, you know, like, early, like, she'd just go, something would be going on with the kid, and I would pull out my phone, I'd text her mom, and I'd go, you got to call her, she's crazy, and set it off. And then ironically, a minute later, her mom's calling, she's like, Tony, I just told you that to listen. You know, I'm like, oh, sorry, your mom's on the phone, take it. You know, <laughs> I tell you, moving to fix-it mode too quick has never been healthy for me. There needs to be this movement from our hearts breaking to us connecting with God, going, God, you got to be in this. Because on my own strength, I don't know if I can pull it off, God. I, I need to let my tears be the triggers to my prayers. And I wonder if you're here and you're like me. You can relate to rushing in, trying to fix things on your own strength. Missing out on the fact that God desperately wants to help. I mean, even Jesus himself said this in Matthew 7, 7. He says, keep on asking and you will receive what you've asked for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. Jesus says, would you just ask me? I would love to help out. I would love to be the one who does this with you. But for me, and maybe for some of you, that's just the tension that you have of just going, am I going to seek God first or am I going to try and answer it myself? Nehemiah was smart. 
He knew if he was going to succeed in this enormous fixer-upper project, that he was going to need God's help, that he was going to need God to be with him. That's why he says this in verse 5. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, look down and see me praying. He let his tears be the trigger to his prayers. And maybe some of you, that's a word for you. He says, look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. He says, I confess that we have sinned. He says, I know I've blown it. I'm just going to confess this, that, that we've all sinned against you. And he goes on to say this, yes, even my own family. He says, I know I have junk in my life. We've sinned. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind. So Nehemiah, he prays this giant prayer. He knows he needs to go and talk to his boss, the king, and ask the king if he can go be a part of this fixer-upper project. And he does. Nehemiah finds the courage, but I think he found the courage not just because his heart was broken. I think he found the courage because he had prayed and asked God to be the very source of his strength. Can I ask you real quick before I give you the third one? What are you praying for right now? Is it your marriage? I know it might seem crazy to you, but are you praying for your finances? You're asking God to give you wisdom on how you spend? When's the last time you've prayed for your kids? No shame. We don't like the shame, the guilt thing around here. But when's the last time your son or daughters came home and instead of just trying to fix it on your own, the problem that they're having, you say, hey, I'm just going to pray. And maybe that'd be too uncomfortable, but when they go to sleep at night or when you hang up the phone, you say, I'm not just going to race in trying to, to do this for them. I'm going to pray and ask God to be with them. Can I just say it one more time? Would you let your tears be the trigger to your prayers? Well, Tony, I don't cry ever. And I'd say, suck it up. Let your heart break for the things that aren't going well. Nehemiah's did. So he let his heart break. He let his tears turn to prayers. And the third thing that needs to happen for you, and it needs to happen for me, and it needs to happen to us, if we want to see a fixer-upper actually take place, and we go and we do something, the third thing that we all need to say is, send me to action. Because that's what Nehemiah did. He didn't just simply stay on the sidelines with a broken heart. He just didn't stay in his prayer closet which you gotta be, you gotta spend some time praying and asking God to be with him. He actually moved into action. Friends, there's an equation that prayer plus action actually equals a movement of God. When we pray and we ask God to show up, oftentimes he looks right back at you and goes, well, will you do something about it? Do you ever wonder that? Why there's so many injustices in this world? While there's so many hurts, while there's so many hard things around us, I think God asks the same question back to us and go, I've broken your heart over it. Would you step in? Would you be a part of the solution? Would you come and be a part of what I want to do? Would you help write a better story in the life of people? So would you send me 
into action. Nehemiah, he prays, and he actually has this opportunity to stand before the king. And he tells the king, my heart's broken over a city I love. He tells the king about Jerusalem, and maybe he shares a story or two. Because listen to what he says. He says, for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. He's captivating the king's heart right here. He says, the gates have been destroyed by fire. He goes on to say this. The king asked, well, how can I help you? It's amazing, by the way, that when our hearts break over something and we ask other people to be involved, I mean, it's incredible how often that other people's hearts can break over the same things that break ours. The kings did. He says, well, how can I help you? And with a prayer again, he prays again to the God of heaven. I replied and kind of get some courage here. He says, if it pleases you, king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me. Send me to Judah. Send me to Jerusalem is what it means. To rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Friends, Nehemiah had the courage to say to the king, would you send me? Would you choose me? And just so you know, right after this, I won't read it on the screen for you. The, the king uh, actually goes, well, what do you need? And so Nehemiah basically asked the king to fund the whole project. He says, I'll take some lumber, I'll take some horses, I'll take some transportation, and I'll take a bunch of your soldiers to keep me safe. And listen to what the king says in verse 8. He says, the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So Nehemiah starts. And we'll pick that up next week. But I want to conclude today with a question for you. What is the fixer-upper project in your life? Is there a project right now that God has laid on your heart that he wants you to participate in? Again, some of you, it's you. You're the fixer-upper. And for far too long, you've said, no, I'm not. No, no, no. I I'm all good. I'm all good. And your spouse is going, no, no, you're not good. <laughs> you are it. I need you to dial some things in. You're like, no, no, I'm not good. And I said, oh, I'm fine. And, you're, and your kids are like, dad, mom, it's you. Like, you've got to take some steps. Everybody knows it. Except for you. And you've been denying it. That addiction. That insecurity. That issue, that thing you keep running to when you're scared, when you're lonely, and when you're bored, that holds you in bondage, would you allow God to break your heart again? For some of you, you might need to just let your heart break for your family. You, you might say, God, my life the way it is right now, I can't have this be a part of the family you've blessed me with. So I need to make a move. Others of you, it's something you see around you. It's something in the community. Maybe there's a neighbor or a family friend, or maybe there's somebody at your school, and your heart breaks for them. You see the way they're treated. You see the way the community treats them, and you go, that's unacceptable to me i got to be a part of this. Very similar to me, I go, it's unacceptable to me that there's other cities like Washington, Iowa that don't have a church. 
where unchurched people can come and they don't feel guilted or shamed, but they feel loved and welcomed. I go, it breaks my heart. I feel compelled to move, to keep moving. What is it for you? What is God stirring in your heart to be a part of? And I wonder if us together, we during this series, as we kind of round the corner into fall now, we would allow God to break our hearts from our, more of our own family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. The people in our circle of influence who've never been invited, who've never taken a shot on showing up to church. Would we allow God to use us to be a part of reaching our corner of Iowa for God? I want to pray, and I want to ask God to, to speak to us, to do something in us, and to call us to be a part of a fixer-upper project this month that we'll thank him for for the rest of our lives. Would you pray with me? God, thanks so much for this book. Thanks so much for this guy named Nehemiah. God, I'm excited to study and to see what you have in store for us. God, I'm excited to see what you do in and through the people here at City Point. God, it's my hope that you would stir within us a passion for what breaks your heart, that it wouldn't just be about us finding whatever we want, but that we would have our hearts break for the very things that stir your heart. So God, I'm asking that you'd show up. I'm asking that you would change us, and I'm asking that you would prompt our hearts like you prompted Nehemiah's. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can stand and sing with us as we wrap it up.